you cannot avoid bias ever. <laughs> like there's no way to get rid of them. You can try to mitigate them as much as possible. And that's probably my job full time. So one of the approaches we think it works is to be transparent and document everything you do. So if from the testing, we find some sort of bias that we cannot tackle. So like we say, this algorithm is creeping this bias through and we cannot fix it. Then we document it. So I think there's nothing wrong to say that the algorithm is not perfect. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the risks and the opportunities of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Welcome, Paula, to The Foil. Thank you so much for your time today. Your undergraduate study was in physics and engineering in Honduras. What made you decide to study astrophysics? That's a good question. Thanks for having me. In reality, I'm not the common astronomer who looked at the sky and was very excited about the stars. <laughs> I never thought I was going to be an astronomer. I was more into engineering and mathematics. And I started to as a civil engineering in, in my early days in the university. But when I started to take the physics lessons, I was very interested in physics. I realized that probably in my high school, I didn't have much input about what physics was. And so when I was in university, I started to discover all this new world that I really liked. So I started to take more physics lessons just as a hobby. And somehow I switched into physics. And so at the end, I ended up finishing my engineering degree, which I never used. And then I moved completely into physics. And I didn't think I was going to be an astronomer. I thought I was going to be a physicist. <laughs> but then when I had to explore different subjects to pick a thesis, I found something really cool in astronomy about AGNs, which is aptigalactic nuclei. And I found someone that it was willing to supervise me. So I ended up switching into astronomy and I really liked my thesis and that took me into schools and workshops and um, some conferences. So when I finished my physics degree, I was pretty ready to be an astronomer. <laughs> I think that's how I ended up in Australia because I applied to a PhD in Swinburne. I got accepted and then a scholarship and then I moved all the way here. What do you think really is the importance of data science in astrophysics? Uh, in astrophysics, I specifically is using a lot of data science because we rely on data coming from the telescopes and this data is really heavy. So the concept of big data really applies to astrophysics um, because specifically the surveys, they are just taking many pictures a day of the whole universe. And each picture, like you have to see it as a three-dimensional space. When you are seeing an overlap of things that are happening in many large distances. So um, you see galaxies and stars who are closer to you, but you are seeing galaxies and stars who are really far away from you in the same patch. So from one little patch of observation, you can get a lot of information about different type of astrophysical phenomena. And then if this is happening every hour and in the telescope for, you know, years, you get a lot of data to analyze. And on top of that, it's not just getting the data and doing the statistics, like you have to start by cleaning the data. 
So it's, it's a lot like photography, like, well, it is photography. <laughs> so you get, the, you get this um, noisy photograph of the sky that you need to clean and you can use a lot of uh, data science technique to clean it in the first place to remove the background noise, the atmospheric intervention. So like the atm atmospheres always blurs the pictures, so you need to remove the atmosphere signal. Yeah, so there are a lot of processing happening before actually analyzing the data. And all of that, um, well, it, it includes physics, photography, includes uh, data science <laughs> um, altogether, I guess. Fascinating, Paola. I'm really curious about what inspired you to get into maths when you were young. There's a lot of research in Australia around uh, young girls in school just thinking they're not good at maths and therefore not following a career in STEM. And it is a big problem because it means that we don't have enough people coming into data science from many diverse backgrounds. Can you talk a bit about the early education you had in Honduras and, you know, were there many girls who were interested in maths and science or were you unusual? Uh, that's a really good point, actually. I think your teacher has a lot of weight on you, like whoever you get as a teacher when you're young. I had a female teacher um, when in math. And she was really good at prompting us, I think. I, I really remember uh, this technique that she had where she will say, okay, this is how you do this. This is how you solve this formula. And she will do it step by step on the Y bar. But then she will say, and for those who are smarter, this is the best way to do it. But not every one of you will get it. And she will just do it really quick on a corner and then walk away. So I guess the ones who were interested in math, they were like, oh, I'm smarter. I need to figure that one out. I don't care about the one that she gave me step by step. And that was really good because then the next day when she come back, she will say, did you solve the problem? And like some of us will participate and say, yeah, I, I find out why that one is better than this one. So I think she was very influential in me in my early stages. My dad wanted to be a civil engineer and he never finished uh, because of life circumstances, I guess. And so he put a lot of weight on me as well on math. Um, so he will explain a lot of technicalities about what he learned and why he loved it. Uh, he was very handy. So he will, you know, fix the car and take me over and say, look, this is a car and this is how a machine works. So I did get a lot of influence from my dad. That is not common in Central America or Latin America in general. So women are always expected to be in the house and like to help the family rather than studying mathematics or studying in general. <laughs> but I did think in my, my high school in particular, I wouldn't, I will see that we were treated equally women and men. And I did have a lot of friends who were good in maths being women. So that was good. Um, it was a good step. And then I think the ones who follow up, follow through were the ones who get the family support. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's interesting you say that about the teachers because the Sydney Women's Fund did a piece of research, which is, uh, well, worked with a number of 
researchers to understand this issue. And indeed, it is teachers who have a huge influence in those early years, particularly by ages six, seven and eight. And one of the issues is sometimes the teachers didn't feel comfortable teaching mathematics. So this is an incredible influence. Yeah, I did read that in Australia because we, I am interested in education in general. And I did see that one of the problems is there are not many people training math to teach math. Um, so the ones who are covering the holes is because they have to. And they, as you said, that they, they are not very confident of what they are doing. And that's reflected towards the students, right? But yeah, I think in Latin America, the, the main stop for women is probably families. Because I did have friends who were interested, but then when it was time to move to university, their families didn't support them or they will say, well, no, that's it. This is all the education you get because we need help in the house and you're going back to the house. Well, their brothers didn't have that. Their brothers actually went to university, uh, which is very sad, but yeah. So we're lucky to have you in the data science community here in Australia because you have moved from astrophysics at Swinburne into the not-for-profit and social sector as the lead data scientist uh, from the Innovation Lab at our community. What inspired you to make that change? So I did my take in astrophysics and I did love it. Um, I still love it. Uh, it's It's actually better now because now I see it as my hobby rather than my work. And so I can follow what's happening in astrophysics just because I like it. But then I got to a point where I needed to decide what to do next in my career and in my life, uh, including my personal life. So I got into the point where I had a family and I, I wanted to have a baby. And I found that me as not being Australia at the mom- Australian at the moment, because I was not a citizen by then, it was very unlikely for me to get a permanent position in a university or to get a stable job in a university. So I will have to keep applying for postdocs. That will take me, you know, it means you have to apply for a postdoc every three years. And in science, it's kind of expected that you will move around. So like you will go from Australia to Europe to the United States, which is great because you get to see different cultures, you learn a lot about different scientific standards, and you get all these collaborations going when you move. But once you have a family, that moving is not that easy. So I decided that I didn't want to go through that struggle with my family, and, uh, and it was time to make a change. And because I was coming from the science background where I was doing things because I like it and because I believe in them, I was a bit hesitant to move straight into industry because I thought it was going to be really hard for me to to go into tight deadlines to sell a product rather than believing in the product. So my first point was um, looking into something that it will have some meaningful impact in society. And I thought, if I don't get anything there, that's fine. And then I move into industry. (laughs) But I did get a job and I got an amazing job. Our community has been great. Uh, They've been super supportive of me. I didn't have any idea of what the Australian social sector was when I moved in. And in my interview, I pretty much said, I'm an astronomer. I I learn fast and I'm interested in social equity. So I'm moving in here and I will learn what I have to learn if you let me. (laughs) And they were like, oh, yep. Okay, come in. Come and learn with us. (laughs) And it's been like that. They've been training me from day one. Uh, I've been learning a lot in the past three years. And yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy there. Uh, I think it's great because I get to apply all my math and nerdy hobbies there to a very social good uh, objectives and to trying to improve society for real. So I'm very happy with that. 
seems like in the time that you've been in the sector that you've picked up quite a bit. You've written prolifically on a number of different aspects. In fact, one of the projects that I know that you've worked on at the Innovation Lab is, um, is Classifier. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> but it's the tool that helps automate grant making. So could you tell us what does Classifier do and what was it like developing that tool? Yep. Um, so Classifier was my first project when I started in our community and it's still my first priority today. So it just keeps going. The, the main problem, and this is the way we work in our community, and I think this is the way data science is working in the social sector. We start by stating a problem and then we try to solve this problem however it's possible and affordable. Uh, rather than focusing on trying new tools or using the most shiny technology. Um, so what happened with Classifier was our community has been talking about the standardizing ground making so that they can actually analyze the data. So trying to have a standard classifications of grants so that we can see where is the money going and what the grant like the funders are funding. In the first place, the problem was that each one of the grant makers had their own classification, but they don't, they cannot compare to each other. So for example, if I am a sports grant maker, I have my own way to classify sports and I probably classify it between, oh, I'm funding activities, I'm funding professional sports, I'm funding outdoor sports or something like that. But then there is another sport grant maker who has a different way to classify sports. And so therefore they know what they are doing, but they don't know what their neighbors are doing. And in the global scale, we don't know what Australia is doing. And so Smarty Grants, which is part of our community, which holds around a million and a half grants at the moment, um, because it's a grant management system, was very interested in seeing where is Australia going because they have all this grant, this Australian grant sitting in the database. But because there was not a standardization, they cannot analyze the data and they cannot tell you where where the money is going. So the first idea was, okay, let's create an algorithm who automatically classifies these grants. But it's, it's a double word, not just the algorithm, but also the taxonomy that you're using to do the classification. So Smarty Grants has a big group of people working in both areas. Um, so we have people like Kathy Richardson, uh, Josh, um, who are doing a lot of the expert knowledge and um, writing looking and maintaining the taxonomy, which is called classy. And then we have the data scientists like me, um, Nathan, which who is my coworker, Sarah Barker, uh, who is my uh, line manager, who are overlooking the algorithm to use the taxonomy to classify the grants. So it is, it is a big group effort, a big team effort between um, the ones who are experts in the area and the ones who are mathematically experts in algorithms and the ones who are software engineers to put the algorithm out. And I've been massively writing the algorithm in consultation with all of them. And we have tried different ways of doing it. So we have tried machine learning, different flavors of machine learning. And then at the end, we move into keyword matching because we were trying to be very transparent. We want to avoid as many biases as possible. And we want to have the freedom of alterating the algorithm every time it's necessary so that we can improve it every time. So we found out that with machine learning is pretty much a black box and it's really hard to do all these changes. And there are a lot of biases coming through. 
While the keyword matching algorithm is really easy to maintain, it's light. I have full um, authority over it. <laughs> so I can't, like, if, if a client comes back and say, I don't like this classification because it's not doing the right thing, I can open the algorithm and fix it. And then we have a new classification pretty much. So yeah, that's my main project. I love it. It has many different faces and that's that's how I've been learning a lot about the social sector, because by working with the taxonomy and definitions and categories, I've been seeing all the different pockets of areas that the social sector has and um, all the different activities that they found different types of grant makers as well, I guess. <laughs> so what are the actions people are taking, grant makers are taking on the back of having access to this information through this work? Initially for us, it was just having an analysis of the data. So for us, it was like, okay, can we give you a bar chart who tells us that Australia is putting X amount of dollars in arts and X amount of dollars in sports, right? Um, and, and we thought, I've, of course, grant makers will be interested in this. <laughs> in reality, now that the algorithm is out, um, the use case scenarios are like many and varied and different from what we thought uh, it would be at the beginning. So now a lot of people are doing, are using this as a search engine. So they will say, can we find all the grants related to ballet? <laughs> and they just run the algorithm for that. Some of them are using it to feed uh, websites. So you can put it in the back of the web websites. Um, to classify social sector text, which is not necessarily grants, like can be other types of text. We are putting it into all the, um, our community enterprises, which is GiveNow is one of them. Funding Center is another one. So GiveNow is a donation platform uh, and each one of the non-for-profits can be part of the donation platform and put their costs. So we can classify the costs. So when we classify the causes, then um, people can come and say, oh, I just want to see the causes related to animal welfare. And then they go and filter by it. And, and all of that is powered by the algorithm in the background. Uh, funding center is a database to find uh, available grants. So as well, if they are classified, it's much easier for the user to find what they are looking for. Yeah, there are many, many different aspects. Uh, we've been now lately, we are using it to understand outcomes. Um, so we are using it to, to find domains in grants so that we can group the type of impact and outcomes that these grants are making. And so trying to help the grant makers to create reports about the outcomes. And aside, like as part of this report, you need to classify the grants. So yeah, there are a lot of different case scenarios, I guess. And I'm pretty sure we will discover more with time. Cool. Can I unpack a little bit about what you were talking about when you were saying that there's the, you know, the two parts to classifier. There's classy, that's the taxonomy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you were describing when you were saying we're going to develop a corpus of keywords that associate with various themes, various types of grants or applications that the, the grants might be coming in for. And then there's the algorithm itself. And you said the algorithm is doing keyword matching. Can you tell me more about what that keyword matching looks like? What is that keyword matching algorithm doing? So what we were doing is like, and, and probably the history helps a little bit. Initially, we thought everything was solved with machine learning. So we wanted to use machine learning. That was it, right? 
That was the goal. And so the problem was we didn't have any labels. So the, the data was not classified in the first place manually. So we didn't have anything to feed into the algorithm. And so the algorithm could learn the classifications. As a pet project, we decided to develop some keywords so that we can have a synthetic label data set. And so to get the keywords, because the taxonomy, like classy as a dictionary, what it has is like, this is arts. The arts breaks in four different levels. So you can have recreations, you can have arts administrations, arts education, and then each one of those break into more detail. And then, so you have an ID for that, a label and a definition, but you don't have keywords related to it. So my first work on this was to extract keywords. I use all the grants database to extract keywords relevant to a specific categories. And this is a lot of data science work and text analysis because we had to use, you know, parts of speech and clean all the corpus of the grants to extract the very relevant keywords. And then for some reason, we have this group of keywords who will pretty much tell you what each category is. But then obviously it wasn't great. Um, it, we had some labels, but they were not super good. And then if we feed them in the machine learning, it was even worse because like if the keywords matching was doing a 70% accuracy, like machine learning was doing a 50% accuracy, right? Um, so we kept working on the keywords and so we were like, oh, the problem is that some keywords are related to topics and some keywords are related to the context of the grant. Can we just separate them? <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, let's separate them. And then at some point we were like, oh, why don't we put limits into this? So um, it needs to match two topic keywords and then three context keywords so that it becomes a classification. And so this sort of rules started to happen naturally just because we were trying to refine the labels. Um, so at the end, what we have is kind of a ad hoc model that we created that it has keywords divided in different groups. So we have topic keywords, context keywords, exclusion keywords, uh, and we have limits of how to create the match of how many keywords should fit from each of the groups. So it becomes a mathematical model that it has to apply these different rules um, to be able to create the classification. And then it comes the second part, where is how do we score this? How do we know which one is the best match, right? Like when you do machine learning, you get an accuracy and then you think that the higher accuracy is the best match. In this case, we didn't get an accuracy because we were doing a different methodology. So we had to come out like you, you, you can see my, you know, whiteboard sessions where we are like trying to get into what's the best way to calculate a score from the keywords. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, we haven't nailed that one yet <laughs> uh, <laughs> because what we, we have realized is all about the user rather than the algorithm. Like we have no idea which one is the best match. Um, so if you have a, if you have a grant that is going for like, uh, you know, elderly people who are getting an arts lesson, this grant will have at least two or three labels because it will have education, it will have elderly people and it will have art lessons. And from those three labels, which one is the most important? Like, there's no way to say. So the only way to, to know which one is more important is 
knowing who is going to use the classification. So if the person who's going to use the classification is someone who works in the aged care sector, then for them it's more important that it's labeled as elderly people. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if it is someone who works in arts, then for them it's more important that it's labeled as arts. So what we do is like, we put some sort of scores that it tells us this is an accurate classification, but it is really hard to say which one is the most important of all of them. Um, so that's where the second part of the work comes when we have to be in consultation with the users, the clients, several testings, uh, internal testing, external testing, um, because every person who uses it is expecting something different from the algorithm. <laughs> so we have come to the point that uh, we allow them to filter um, so they don't need to use the whole taxonomy if they don't want to. They can use a subset of the taxonomy. Um, so it is just things that there is relevance for them. Um, yeah. So if you allow the user to put enough input, then the classifier performs as they expect it to perform pretty much. Yeah. 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 And, and so, so for, for each use case for each user, it's not just going to be which keywords are going to be most important to include or not include in their, in the model for them, but also perhaps even the structure in terms of the parameterization and the weighting that those keywords get in that use case. Yeah, uh, exactly. And yeah. I, I think, as I was saying, like, um, in this grant, if it is for elderly people, for education and for arts, but I don't care about education at all, then I can put up a, uh, a filter and say, don't show anything related to education when I do this classification. Just show me things related to arts. And so then it will be classified against arts. And that's what yeah. you want to see, right? Um, yeah. So you can put the parameters um, to tune the algorithm to do what you want to see very much. I wanted to pick up as well on one thing that you mentioned earlier where you were saying that the keyword matching algorithm has an advantage of being transparent. It's very easy to look under the hood if you like and see what this algorithm is doing and how it's doing it, why it's arriving at the classification that it's producing. And you mentioned that that's also a way of addressing bias. We found ourselves recently actually discussing prejudicial bias in AI systems quite a bit. And um, I know that addressing bias is also actually one of the core themes of the uh, the Our Community Grantmaking Manifesto, which holds that grantmakers should ensure that the process of grantmaking is fair, unbiased, and transparent. So I wanted to know, like, maybe a little bit more of your thoughts on how you avoid a system like Classy or Classifier exhibiting bias, um, and what impact could it have if Classy did have a bias? So the the quick question is, like, you cannot avoid bias ever. (laughs) Like there's no way to get rid of them. You can try to mitigate them as much as possible. And that's probably my job full time. Um, we do try to mitigate them as much as possible. Uh, transparency is one of them. So one of the approaches we, we have, we think it works is to be transparent and document everything you do. Um, so if from the testing, we find some sort of bias that we cannot tackle. So like we say, this algorithm is creeping this bias through and we cannot fix it, then we document it. So I think there's nothing wrong to say that the algorithm is not perfect. Um, so we just say, okay, if you are, um, so for example, there are a lot of the, the categories or niche areas that we will never get enough information to have a, a great classification. So um, there are, for example, um, some of the, religion categories that there are not many grants going through those religions. Um, There are some categories about international relationships that we don't have enough 
grants in our database uh, from international relationships. And so in that case, if we don't have enough data to get the right keywords or enough keywords to sit in, um, we can expect that these categories will be overlooked by the classifier or like wrongly classified. Um, so we have to document and say, if you are working with international relationship categories, be aware that the classifier accuracy is lower in these areas or be aware that these categories specifically doesn't work well. Um, so you, you might benefit from a manual review over this. The implications, obviously, is if, if we overlook one of the categories that it was already being overlooked, uh, it just keeps being overlooked. <laughs> um, so we're just throwing under the hood a category that it was already um, suffering from inequality. So the most important way of tackling bias in this process is the continuous maintenance and the user input. So the fact that classifier and classy, both of them, they have different versions and they update versions with time um, is because we have an open forum for users to tell us what they need to improve. So they can come back to us and say, the classifier is doing a really crappy job in this specific area. Can you please fix it? Uh, and if we can fix it, we fix it. And then the next release will include that, right? Um, so it's, it's a way of communication, communicating with the different users, uh, data owners, uh, people who are being affected by these categories and just having that open mindset. And the fact that we come to this podcast and talks and like conferences to keep it open out there is, is, is one of our best strategies to avoid mitigate biases, I think. And the Our Community Funding Center uh, the database tracks more than 3,400 grants programs. So really you are able to analyze a lot of the grant programs across Australia. And, and it's really important, isn't it? Because looking at the report that you did about grants in Australia a couple of years ago, it states they represent $80 billion in the economy. <laughs> yes. uh, it's a huge part of the Australian economy. And most of that funding that money, that $80 billion is coming from government, state and federal expenditure in general, about 20% is in the form of grants mm -hmm. to agencies such as welfare agencies, not-for-profits, grassroots organisations. So how do you see the work that you're doing now impacting the delivery of that funding and the decision-making that's made by grant makers? <laughs> um, so the what we are trying to to be is the the devil's advocate for the grant. <laughs> so like we are trying to to be that annoying brother, tapping their shoulders and telling them like, "Have you look what your neighbor is doing? Have you look what's happening globally? Have you look what's happening in Europe and in the U.S.? Um, are you interested in fixing this problem? Pretty much. Um, so having access to this Marie Grant database where all the grant makers. Um, so what is the problem? Is it replication? Um, is it funding going to certain areas where perhaps there's greater need in other areas? What is the problem? So that's, that's actually a really good question because um, in reality at the moment, we don't know. So like that, that figure that you mentioned, the 80 billion, it's an estimation of what we think is, but like 
it's, it's really hard to get the data to say this is exactly the amount of money that is flowing in Australia. It doesn't exist. Um, so it is a data science project, right? To, to try to, to gather as much data as possible to know what's the amount of money flowing and where it's going. We can do it now in Smarty Grants thanks to the different tools that we have developed. Uh, but Smarty Grants is a subset of Australia, so it's not even all the grants in Australia, right? I think what's really interesting, and most people don't know this unless you are working in the sector, is that federal grant makers and state grant makers and local grant makers in government, so local councils, state agencies and federal agencies, actually don't know what's being funded in local communities or across different areas of um, the social services sector. And so this is a great question or problem to try to answer with data science. Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that we showed uh, facts and we say, this is exactly what the data is telling you. Does it really reflect to what you are living in your daily life? Well, there, there are cases where we put out a plot and they come back and say, like, that doesn't really reflect what I'm doing. And the reason is this and this and this. Um, so for example, we will be analyzing a lot about what's happening with COVID. Uh, what are the trends with the COVID and the impact of COVID in ground maker and ground making? And like, hopefully we're going to get a report out, um, probably in a couple of months. It's almost ready. Um, and so what, when we presented this in the ground makers conference in preliminary results, um, a lot of them said that oh, these are pretty plots, but like, but it doesn't really mean anything to me because they were like, some of them came and say like, we were in such a rush to get the money out that we didn't even document it. So the data that you're showing doesn't include my data. Um, some of them will say like, uh, so there was a, a plot where it was showing a drop in um, acceptance rates. So the acceptance rate were dropping. And some of them say, yeah, well, the reason why acceptance rates are dropping is because we are getting more application. We are funding the same, but the, the flux of application is growing. So there is all this context that is happening in their local communities that we don't know. But when we bring these plots um, to the public, it makes them wondering what's happening. And it kind of starts the conversation, right? So like when we come into this conference and we share this plot, then they talk to each other and they say, oh no, in my case, this is this. And oh no, in my case, this is this. And so it becomes um, a way to to understand each other and to help each other as well to like lesson learns and why did we see this drop? How can we fix it? And those sort of things. I love how you're making the invisible visible for that, <laughs> for that conversation to improve. What is the role of data literacy in this case then um, for people to have a better conversation or to believe the data? <laughs> I think there is a the big push, especially in the last three years, to get more data driven within ground making and not-for-profits. It's been really hard. Uh, I think um, not many organizations are ready for it. Not many organizations are re like interested in it. A lot of them are still uh, book-based organizations. That, um, and, and at the same time, like we have to remember the social sector is serving areas that the industry sector is not serving, right? So we have met with organizations where their base community is really remote, 
they don't have access to computers or like they're not, or they work with um, an older community who never had the option of having an email or something like that. So in that case, they have to print things and send them by mail, all the documentation. So all their forms are paper-based form, right? Um, and when you talk to them, they said, yeah, we would love to have that analysis about what we are doing, but how do we do it if everything is on paper? Um, it is really expensive to digitalize all of this and we cannot move to a digital format because our community doesn't take it. Like it's the best way to serve them. And I, I, like, I did a fellowship in uptake in the US a few years ago. And they were training data scientists for the social sector. And one of the things they told us the first day of the fellowship was, remember you are building tools that need to serve the community. And if you build a tool that the community cannot use, your tool is completely useless. Um, so they were talking, one of them put the example where she was working in Africa and she was looking into water sources in Africa and trying to map this. And she came up with this amazing visualization and map where you can zoom in and look at the different sources. And they were like, it's so heavy, the visualization that it doesn't load in our phones. And we have a terrible internet connection and nobody can see your super shiny, beautiful like <laughs> visualization. So what she had to do is to convert this interactive tool into a PDF and then print the PDF and send the PDF by mail, right? <laughs> And so it's like, this is the way I serve the community. And so you need to know who are you working for. Um, so I think this aspect of being data driven and in the social sector specifically is not just tech, right? It's about understanding how to collect the data, even if it is manually and understanding how can you use that data, even if it is manually. Um, or like collect it manually and then turn it into something digital using one of the Chinese tools if you can, which is also easy to do. We're getting there. <laughs> I think we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious about the Innovation Lab resources for not for profits. You do a lot of work to support the data literacy through online tutorials, the NFP data capability framework, and project guides. Can you talk a bit about those resources and what people can learn? So one of the things we do, the Innovation Lab is a very small team. As I mentioned before, we are five to six people, a few, two data scientists, one data analysis, one software engineer, and two journalists. It's a nice mix of skills, I will say. Uh, and we do different things. So my job is related to smart grants analysis and classifier and our community enterprises. And my coworker, Nathan, um, he works directly with non-for-profits. So his main role is to connect with the non-for-profits and talk to them and help them do better. One of the goals of that work is to help non-for-profits to learn more about data, as you said before. And, um, and he has designed very good um, resources for that. One of them, and this is new, uh, is the tutorials, the online tutorials. This used to happen in person before COVID, but now we are moving into online format. So anyone has access to it. And at the moment they're free. So you can just go into the website and pretty much sign in and do the, the first tutorial. And 
this is a series of, of four tutorials. The first one is the very basic, pretty much what's data science, do I really need it in my non-for-profit? What's data and how do I collect it? And then the second one, it moves a little bit more about, okay, now I have to design a program. What is the best data I can collect for that program? How should I clean it? And how should I analyze it? And then it moves into more data scientist stuff and the third and the fourth. And so the tutorials are a really good way to create community and to meet other non-for-profits who are doing this and who are trying to become more data leaders and to, you know, collaborate with each other. But then we have a lot of written resources in our website. So one of them that is really powerful is the data capability framework, which is um, pretty much a pyramid which shows you how data science moves from just collecting the data, cleaning the data, um, doing an analysis, and then moving into something like machine learning. And then you can map yourself on how are you progressing in that pyramid and which case scenario is applicable for that pyramid. So if you are doing fundraising analysis, where does this fundraising sit? Do I want to get only analysis or do I want to move into predictions with this fundraising? So that's a very handy one page research. And then there is the data project guide, which is meant to show you 15 steps to become a data driven non-for-profit organization. So you go from a step one to step 15 to develop a project pretty much. Fantastic. Awesome, Pella. Thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on all of your work. We look forward to staying connected and, of course, um, really keen to continue to collaborate with you as our two organisations work together to help the sector become more data-driven. Definitely. Looking forward. <laughs> Thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.